2009, October 7th. Today is Lecture 11, The Geological History of the Earth. So, for those of you who have been following the audio, audio recordings, I greatly apologize for yesterday's little oops with my recorder. Um, turns out the battery uh, door got loose, and so when I went down to reach in my pocket and pull out the recorder at the end of class, it felt light, and then I looked and the battery door was hanging down the, and the battery was in my pocket. Stalled the recording two seconds into lecture. So I'm, uh, I, I worked on the recorder and fixed it. If it doesn't work, I got a big roll of duct tape back in my office. So I'm sure we're going to get this working again. So I apologize that, that that's missing, but you can't step in the same river twice. And I, I really wouldn't want to try to just sit down and give the same lecture twice because that just ain't going to happen. It's, it's halfway between teaching and uh, improv uh, sometimes. So I, I just have talking points and I roll. Um, so I don't think I could reproduce it if I tried. So today we're, we're going to now take what we learned in the last two days about the structure of the Earth, primarily as it is today, and the structure of the atmosphere, and start looking now at the history of the Earth. We're going to start to, today we're going to primarily concentrate on the physical history of the Earth, but certain themes are going to come in about where the atmospheres and oceans came from. That's going to lead into tomorrow's lecture, which is going to be on climate regulation and climate change through Earth's history. Both of these have very important implications for when on Earth life emerged and what sets both the short-term and long-term habitability of our planet. It's important clues as to how long you might expect life to exist on a planet or how hard it is for life to arise and get started on a planet. It isn't maybe just enough that you're a planet in the right place with somewhere to stand. Other conditions seem to be necessary for life to exist. And we're going to start working our way through those ideas here for the next couple of lectures. So today we're going to be talking about the geological history of the Earth. So we're going to, there are five major points that we want to cover today on, on, on the geological history of the Earth. The first is to say something about how we reconstruct this history. Because unlike human history where I have written records, geologic history I have literally geological records. Sometimes incorrectly called the fossil record. Because in reality, the fossil record is only one piece of what we put together to piece together the Earth's four and a half billion year history. Now, geologists break up the history of the Earth into four major time slots that are roughly a billion years in length called eons. And this is one of the few places where there's a little bit of terminology for you to get in your head. The four major eons are relatively easy to understand. The Hadean, the Archean, the Proterozoic, and the Phanerozoic. We're going to be using this language quite a bit over the next couple of lectures, so I want you to learn these four. The rest of the epochs and periods, no, you have to be a geologist for that. I can't even do that. Of particular interest to us are two phases that we're interested in. The one we live in today is the Phanerozoic. That's the period that began about 600 million years ago to the current time, and that's when complex life emerged. The one we're going to spend most of our time on in class today is the Hadean Eon, which is the time basically from the Earth's formation up to pretty much the end of the period of late heavy bombardment or heavy, or heavy bombardment by asteroids that starts the point where the Earth finally settled down to where life could actually get a foothold. And we'll say more about that in detail. But in particular, one of the interesting results that's come out of recent research, which is just starting to bubble up through your book, but in fact has really taken off in the last couple of years, is the possibility that life may have in fact emerged on Earth way earlier than people thought, almost a billion years earlier. It tells us something about how easy it is, relatively speaking, to get life going if conditions are right. And so it's an interesting idea we'll touch on towards the end here. So today we're looking at the history of the Earth, but we'll take particular emphasis 
on the Hadean period, the, the origin of the earth, because it really informs a lot of what we've been talking about. So before we can do that, I've got to have a little detour into geology, basic geology 101. There are three main kinds of rock we find here on the earth, and they're classified by how the rock was formed, not by what the rock is made of or the chemicals inside of it but how those rocks were formed into a rock. Now, to understand what a rock is, a rock is basically an aggregate of a bunch of minerals and stuff. Okay? The unit of, of geology is really the mineral. It's a single crystal or a single chemical unit, let's say like a silicate crystal or an olivine crystal or something like that. And then we kind of bunch these together and aggregate them into a chunk of stuff I can pick up, and that's a rock. So my geology colleagues would be very upset with sort of dismissing their field in pretty much one sentence as basically they're just rocks. There are three ways in which you can agglomerate this material into rocks. The first of these are the sedimentary rocks. These are made of sand and silt, which is ground up rock basically being almost gotten down to the point of single mineral crystals, which flows out into oceans and lake beds, sinks to the bottom, and eventually compactifies itself on the bottom. Next year's flood cycle lays another layer down, which presses down on top of that, and eventually you squeeze this layer cake of stuff. So this beautiful photograph from out in the, uh, in the southwest of the United States shows this folded, layered, sedimentary terrain, which is year after year, for millions of years, of laid down sediments. The second kind of rock that's of interest to us are the so-called igneous rocks, from the Latin word ignis, meaning fire. These are the rocks that basically are immediately cooled from molten rock. So if you got, for example, in this picture over here to the left, lava coming up through a lava vent. This is a picture from the volcano Mauna Kea. Well, I'm sorry, Mauna Loa. Uh, molten rock comes up and it begins to solidify. The form that it, that it gets into in the first solidification is called the igneous rock. There's a couple of different kinds of igneous rock. They're not as important for us to go into in detail. One form of igneous rock is like the stuff we see out here where the stuff has extruded onto the surface and cooled on the surface. The other kind of, of igneous rock is called an intrusive igneous rock. That's where the magma's flowed into a subterranean or underground area and is solidified underground. So, for example, black lava rocks and basalts are a good example of an extrusive igneous. Granites are examples of an intrusive igneous. Granites basically did their cooling deep inside the earth. Finally, the third kind of rock is called a metamorphic rock. Metamorphic meaning changeable or changed. It's basically rock that's been transformed by a combination of high pressure or high temperature, but not such high temperature that the rock melted. Okay, so if the rock melts and then re-solidifies, that immediately makes it igneous. But if I simply take the rock and compress it and twist it and do terrible things to it and heat it up but don't melt it, then what I get is a metamorphic rock. And you can see this rock has definitely had some pretty ugly things done to it over its history because it's all twisted and folded up, but it never melted. And that's what the distinction is between a metamorphic and an igneous rock. So we're going to see all three kinds of rock running around on the Earth. And each of them is important for giving us a clue into the Earth's history. Now it turns out that, as I mentioned before, the, the rocks, different types of rocks are set by how they are formed which means that these different types of rocks can be transformed one into the other. And it forms what's referred to as the rock cycle. It's the way in which I can take, for example, igneous rocks and convert them either into sedimentary or metamorphic rocks. And, of course, all the possible combinations. What's not shown in this picture over here on the, on the right are the various loops of igneous rocks turning back into igneous rocks and so forth. So this is just the major transformations among the three types. 
The rock cycle is driven by two physical processes. The first of these is weathering, the action of water and wind upon these rocks that basically gives you erosion, breaking them down, and the process of plate tectonics, either plate tectonics compressing and crushing things at high pressure to turn, say, sedimentary rocks into metamorphic rocks, lavas bubbling up from below to give you fresh igneous rocks, rock being pushed underneath the crust into the mantle by subduction, which can convert sedimentary and metamorphic into igneous, and so forth. So the basic processes that are involved here are erosion and deposition. So for example, an igneous rock built on the surface from a volcanic eruption is subject to many thousands of years of weathering and wind and rain, all kinds of junk, will slowly but surely etch the surface, break it down, and it will flow by erosion and become part of the composition of a sedimentary rock. Similarly, Erosion and deposition can break down metamorphic rock. I can have a metamorphic rock outcrop. It gets rained on, gets blown sand on, and eventually it begins to erode and flow downstream into sedimentary rock. Subduction is a way in which rock is destroyed and melted by being drawn into the earth. So we can actually subject the rock to high pressures and high temperatures. If the temperatures are high enough to melt the rock, I can convert sedimentary into igneous or metamorphic into igneous. If all the subduction does is squeeze and heat, but not melt the rock, then I can basically turn igneous or sedimentary into metamorphic. The other possibilities, of course, as I mentioned before, are volcanism, which creates new rock, or volcanism can actually melt rock that the lava flows over for brief periods. Upthrust, which are continental collisions, which can cause entire strata to get busted and bent and, and subjected to high pressures. And so there are all the various combinations that you can get to convert one rock into another. So which type of rock that you have, metamorphic, igneous, or sedimentary, tells you something about how that rock formed and under what physical conditions, primarily pressure and temperature, that that rock experienced. And so this is one of the pieces, the fact that there exists this way to convert the rock from the different three types into each other is part of what are the physical processes used by geologists to try to sort together the history of a particular rock outcropping. You can see, for example, a metamorphic rock has been subjected to an awful lot of, of buckling and bending and heating and pressure. So you know that that rock has probably been through some tectonic process. Sedimentary rocks, you know you're looking at rock which has basically been subjected primarily to weathering effects, and so on and so forth. So you can get an idea of the environment these things formed in, even if what we're seeing is just the outcome of that here in the present day. It gives you a handle on the history. Now the ones that are really going to be of interest to us today are the sedimentary rocks, because these things actually have a clock associated with them. A very interesting clock, which is basically due to the fact that sediments are laid down, the first layer goes down, and then later the next layer comes on top, and then the next layer on top. So we take like this beautiful picture here of a section of the Grand Canyon in Arizona. I know because this stuff has been laid down layer after layer that the oldest rock is going to be on the bottom of the sedimentary layers and the youngest rock is going to be on the top. So I immediately know the relative ages, young versus old. Young on top, old on the bottom. As I go down through the various layers, I might see changes in composition. I might see a layer that's laid down because there was erosion of fresh volcanic activity many millions of years ago. Maybe later I'm seeing sediments that came from metamorphic rocks laid down in a layer. I might see sediments that contain a lot of carbonaceous material, like fossil trees and fossil plants. Those were sediments laid down during an era where the place was warm and wet and there was a lot of plant life around. Other times I might just see sand and the place was a desert. 
So from the sediments, basically, are like a book. They literally, like pages in a book, lay out the history of a particular piece of the terrain. And they can go back many millions of years. Millions of years were spent of, of water activity carving through the Colorado River Canyon to make the Grand Canyon. Now, the way you take these relative ages and turn these into absolute ages or compare the ages of a set of strata in one place, like, say, the Grand Canyon of Arizona, to, say, marine sediments or strata in, say, Mongolia, is by comparing the mineral content of the different layers. What you would expect is that there are certain global composition differences having to do with global temperature, whether there's oceans in the area or continental areas. What type of life exists by comparing the mineral and fossil content allows you to take two widely separate strata and actually put them on the same age scale. So for example here, here's a cartoon coming out of your textbook showing how this process of matching the relative ages of of rocks taken from different parts of the Earth by using the stratigraphic information. This is a process called stratigraphy. So for example, over here on the left, I have some very old sedimentary layers laid down, and then a layer with a particular type of fossil here, this particular type of fossil shell for an animal that only lived a short time, and then some sand layers on top of some other elements. Maybe there was a period of volcanism here, and you see a big layer of mostly volcanic ash. I go to a completely different place over here, and I find, again, the same ordering from old on the bottom to young on top, but I might find the same composition of, say, clays in this layer and ash in this layer, and then the same fossils in these layers. Even though this particular terrain over here might be younger, doesn't have this older sedimentary layer, I can tell this layer came from that one, this layer aligns in time with that one, and so forth. And I can do this both locally within a continent, say, or I can even do it between continents if I have something really unusual. Like, for example, a stratigraphic layer that suddenly has an amazingly high concentration of a very rare element, like iridium, that appears suddenly globally all over the Earth. That tells us something happened to the entire planet at the same time, and I can use those funny changes in composition as markers in time. And doing this, I can reconstruct a lot of geologic history. I then also bring to play the fact that individual mineral crystals, I might find zircons within these strata. I might find crystals that contain um, potassium and argon uh, inclusions. All the different radiographic and radiometric methods can also be brought into play. Those are very powerful because stratigraphy just simply gives the relative ages, but if I can find particular radioisotope combinations, I can set their age in an absolute scale against the age of the Earth. And so through tremendous amount of work for many decades of developing all these techniques, we've been able to reconstruct a lot of the history of the Earth. And the basic tools is the detailed analysis of the rock. And just quickly what these tools are is, the first is mineralogy. What mineralogy is, is the study of the mineral content of a particular rock. Different minerals form, under, form and crystallize under different physical conditions of pressure and temperature. So which mix of minerals you find in which layers tell you what physical forces, what pressures and temperatures that particular layer was subjected to. It also can tell you the conditions under which that layer formed. For example, some types of minerals are formed in the presence of liquid water. Others are formed in places where there's no water, where it's dry. So it gives you a tremendous amount of information. You don't find all minerals every place all mixed together. There's very specific patterns based on what conditions they're made under. The other piece you can look at is chemistry. Now we're talking about detailed chemistry of the elemental composition of these minerals. 
In particular, it's very useful, as I just mentioned in an example, if there's an unusual, and r- uh, unusual abundance of a very rare element, or maybe a lack of an element that's normally common. So, for example, if you have a volcanic out, uh, volca- volcanism um, episode that produced volcanic ash plumes that sped volcanic ash over the entire planet, that happens even today. When Mount Pinatubo exploded, that ash went all over the entire world and slowly deposited itself down and made its way into the sedimentary layers being formed in the 1980s. Geologists a million years from now will find those sediments and say, hey, look, there's a funny mix of chemical signatures that are all the same. They're all coming from the same volcanic ash. In fact, it's so precise now, the chemical analysis, that you can actually start piecing together ash layers to particular volcanoes by going to that volcano and finding the material produced there has a different mix of chemical elements or a different mix of isotopes, you go somewhere else and you can see the ash deposited from that volcanic explosion even millions of years ago. It's one of the tools that geologists use. And a corollary to the chemical analysis is the really powerful one, the isotope analysis. Now you're looking at the mix of, say, Heavy versus light carbon, or light versus heavy oxygen. The the dominant forms of carbon are carbon-14, and dominant form of oxygen is oxygen-16. But there are fractions, 90 to 1, carbon-13, or some large number, which I forget, to 1, of oxygen-18. A couple extra neutrons, or one fewer neutron. These are stable nuclei, for example, and they mix up in air and water, but they might get locked into a crystal. And so it can give you some very important clues by seeing, oh, look, the oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 ratio is changing in a particular way. That will make a very specific marker for that layer. Oh, look, that oxygen 18 to oxygen 16 ratio is seen in all many different places. This one, oxygen 18 to oxygen 16, turns out to be important because it actually turns out to be sensitive to water temperature. So it actually turns out to be a thermometer you can use into paleographic history. It's what's called a paleothermometer. Carbon-13 and carbon-14 is another example where people can use the detailed isotope ratios. This is all made possible by nuclear technology and, and mass spectroscopy, tremendously powerful tools. And, of course, the ultimate is if you can find radioactive isotopes of the right sort, like uranium lead, argon, uh, potassium, you can also do radiometric dating. So all of these pieces together, it's not just one technique, it's not just one person sitting in a room reconstructing this history. This is bringing together a lot of different lines of evidence, a lot of different data, to put together a self-consistent picture of the history of the Earth. Is it a complete picture? No, of course not. We, d- we haven't been able to explore all parts of the Earth in as much detail as we'd like. There's only so many geologists in the world. But what we've been able to put together is a self-consistent and coherent, if still incomplete, view of the history of the Earth. And we'll remember that. Science is always that way. It's always incomplete at some level, but what matters is that it be coherent and self-consistent. So this is a really daunting picture. This is basically all of geologic history laid out in in a long linear timeline. The real important part up here on the top is the long view. This is the entire history of the Earth from the formation of the Earth a little over four and a half billion years ago to the present time over here on the right. The largest division of geologic time that geologists recognize are called eons. There are four eons, the Hadean, Archaean, Proterozoic, and Phanerozoic, Phanerozoic being the one in the present day. They're roughly a billion years long, and they divide up by various events in geologic history that show a distinct break between the eon that preceded and the new eon that passes. From the names here, we're going to go in these in a second, give you some hint as to how we do that. 
Now, if we look at the last half a billion years in round numbers, actually the last 550 million years that makes up the Phanerozoic Eon, we now start getting into eons get broken down into periods and eras. Um, the eras are the long periods here. So, for example, the Phanerozoic is broken into the Paleozoic, the Mesozoic, and the Cenozoic. And then we can break that down into periods, some of which may sound familiar to you. Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Carboniferous, Permian, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous, Tertiary. We're sitting down here in the Tertiary. And then finally, down here, this little thin sliver is called the Quaternary. That's us. So we're just a little tiny sliver in the geologic history. You can see how the Phanerozoic is now really defined by the various forms of life that exist. We're not going to talk a lot about the Phanerozoic today. Basically, the Phanerozoic is the eon of complex animal life. Before the Phanerozoic is basically going to be the period of the earliest fossil cells, especially complex cells called eukaryotes. Again, we'll, we'll define those later, but we'll just mention them today. The Proterozoic is the period for the buildup of oxygen. And then getting before that, we get into the ancient or Archaean, and finally the Hadean period. So let's zero in on these four eons, because these are the main divisions that are going to concern us today and tomorrow. The earliest eon of the Earth is the Hadean era, eon, which is defined, Hadean is basically for the Greek Hades, the underworld. Unfortunately, it's kind of a misnomer. When people think about Hades, they think about a dark place if they know anything about Greek mythology. The person who coined this phrase was thinking about the fact that the earth was hot and mostly molten and in its formation periods. The Hadean period basically goes from 3.8 to 4.5 billion years ago, and it's now found by just traces in the oldest rocks and minerals on the earth. Most of the Hadean rock has been destroyed by all the geologic activity of most of the history of the earth, but there are still a few pockets of ancient rock remaining in the continental shield, right down in the middle of those continental plates, far from any subduction or volcanism. And these are places like the Jack Hills of Australia, the various nice um, outcroppings in northwestern Canada, some places up around Hudson's Bay. There's a series of terrains up in Greenland, for example. These are deep on these continental shields, and there we find zircons deeply embedded in these rock that give us ages between 3.8 and 4.5 billion years ago. The Hadean was ended, as we'll see later, by the end of a period of heavy bombardment by asteroidal material during the formation of the Earth, which happened about 3.8 years ago, and gave way to a time called the Archaean. The Archaean basically is from the word archaic, meaning old. It lasted from 2.5 billion years ago to 3.5 billion years ago, and sometime during the Archaean, back about 3.5 billion years ago, was when the first fossil evidence for very primitive forms of life began to emerge. So-called stromatolites, which are big mats of methane-eating bacteria, it used to be called blue-green algae, but people now recognize they're not algae, they're bacteria, and fossil bacteria of other kinds. So these, we're not going to see animals yet. We're not going to see things with fins and legs, but we're going to see microscopic bacteria, and in particular bacterial colonies. We'll say more about life in the Archean next week when we start getting into the history of life on Earth. The Archean gave way to the Proterozoic about 2.5 billion years ago, and which extended up to 454 million years ago. That, actually, that should be 545 million years ago. Oops, that's the wrong number. Okay, so that should be 545 million years ago. The Proterozoic is marked by two basic events. The word Proterozoic, zoic means life, zoon, is the Greek word for life. 
And protero basically means, proterozoic means earliest life. Now we're still dealing with microscopic fossils. We're still dealing with microbes, but now we're starting to deal with the first things that start resembling modern eukaryotic or animal and plant cells. They're still single-celled organisms, but the big difference is they are actually single-celled organisms that undergo photosynthesis that creates oxygen. And so it's during the Proterozoic that we start seeing the first buildup of oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere. Finally giving way to the end of the Proterozoic and the beginning of the Phanerozoic at 545 million years ago. That begins the period when there was a sudden explosion in biodiversity, giving rise to first multicellular and then actual animal and plant life. So there is a bit of plant life starting to pop up during the Proterozoic, but the Phanerozoic is where things really got going about 545 million years ago. Now, those of you who may know something about geology from a long time ago or watching old TV programs, this whole period below, before the end of the Phanerozoic until recently used to get lumped together in what's called the Precambrian. So if you ever read an older book that talks about the Precambrian eon, that's recently been broken into Hadean, Archaean, and Proterozoic because three very distinct things occurred, uh, three very distinct times come out of the geologic record and have recently been recognized as not only distinct but important for understanding the history of the Earth. Before that, it was simply done by fossils. So we need to talk a little bit about what those first phases were like. Where did the Earth come from? So we're going to concentrate now primarily on the Hadean period. So the Earth formed from rocky material that condensed out of the gas and disk of gas and dust that formed the sun. So the sun began as a gigantic cloud of gas that collapsed under its own weight and pancaked into a gigantic spinning disk. The center parts of that disk, mostly hydrogen and helium, formed into the sun with whatever mix of metals there were. Close to the sun, where things were pretty hot, only rock and metals could actually condense out of the nebula. Ga ices and other things stayed in the gaseous form. And so you formed a rocky earth, which was slowly agglomerating from various bits and pieces of rock and, and, and metal. Now you also get some delivery of comets and cold ices and things like that from the outer solar system, but the conditions were so hot, the, the proto-earth, during the first 10 million years or so of its existence, was essentially a, a, lit, a liquid molten globule of junk that any gases or anything on there would simply evaporate and boil off into space. The Earth was simply too hot and too small with its gravity to hold on to anything approximating an atmosphere. Now it turns out that once you form something about the size of the proto-Earth, the evolution of the Earth, the internal structure of the Earth, started going pretty fast. After about 10 million years after formation began, that process of differentiation, where the heavy metals sink to the middle and the lighter silicates float to the top, began and was going to finish over the course of the next 100 million years or so. So that differentiation is one of the first major events in Earth's history. It breaks into that core and crust structure that we see today. Now, just before the things kind of got really rolling, about 50 million years into that formation, the Earth got whacked, or the proto-Earth got whacked. An object which is estimated to be approximately the size of Mars. The inner solar system was basically a traffic jam of junk running around. But an object roughly the size of Mars smacked into the proto-Earth, kind of offside, off kind of smacked it upside the head here. That collision between the Mars-sized object and the proto-Earth basically devastated the Earth. It completely remelted the entire surface. Pieces of debris blown off from that off-center piece blew out and got trapped in orbit around the Earth, eventually cooling and condensing 
to form the moon. If we look at the chemical composition of the Earth's mantle and we look at the chemical composition of moon rocks, we find that moon rocks tend to have a composition closer to Earth mantle, not Earth crust. So it wasn't just simply a little coagulation next to the Earth. It didn't form as a little binary planet. It really was material knocked out of the Earth. We see common oxygen isotope ratios between the two that should not be that way if it was just two random pieces coming together. And we see on the moon, with rare exceptions, an almost complete lack of minerals that formed in the presence of water because the heat of impact would have completely destroyed all the water on the moon and it wouldn't have been able to get any more for future reference whereas the Earth was big enough to eventually hold on to water. So those are all pieces and clues that go into giving us confidence that the moon was actually formed by one of these giant impacts. As we look through the rest of the solar system, giant impacts are surprisingly common through the history of the solar system. We see this written in the cratering records of airless moons throughout the solar system. We'll see that a little bit. We talk about the solar system in a few weeks. So what the... Moon formation does for us, for t- purposes of today's story, is it resets the clock. It starts the clock ticking on all of those uh, radiometric methods for measuring the ages of rocks. This is why we have to fall back on using meteoritic rock, which was solidified earlier, part of the early solidification of the Earth, to kind of pin down what the rough age of the Earth is, because the moon collision event that formed the moon basically, what, basically reset all the atomic clocks 50 million years into the Earth's formation. Now, this, after the 50 million years after that collision, the Earth began to cool off. It basically was cooled off by the time it reached 100 million years. The Earth probably looks something like this, cart, this, this painting here during the beginning of the Hadean Eon. So we really start, set the start of the Hadean after the moon-forming event, because that's when we finally got down to the point that the Earth was pretty much the size it was going to be and the shape it was going to be, and it had its moon. Now, during this period, the, the Earth is going to be basically airless because the molten events, the the moltenization of the Earth from the collision event with the moon basically blew off whatever atmosphere was there, and whatever atmosphere it tried to build was being blown away by the intense solar wind early in the history of the solar system. The surface would have been bone dry, or at least very dry, because water simply couldn't survive in liquid or even frozen form on the surface, and when you put ice, water ice in a vacuum, it doesn't melt into liquid, it actually flashes into a vapor, a process called sublimation, where the solar wind would pick it up and blow it away. But there were gases like water and carbon dioxide and methane and others trapped deep inside the earth in the rock that formed the earth. Just the same way that you can dissolve carbon dioxide into water to make soda pop, you can dissolve gases inside of molten rock. And so deep inside the Earth, even though it lost its thin layer of atmosphere on the outside, were the seeds of a future atmosphere. And the way this atmosphere got built up is because volcanoes cracking through the thin crust of the the young Earth began to release these gases back into the air. An experiment to do, which I'm not going to do in here because it would make a mess, you know exactly what would happen if you took a bottle of soda pop and shook it up. Well, if it's still still nice and, and sealed up, the carbon dioxide is still dissolved in the water. Then you take the pressure off, and you better stand back because there's going to be a plume of water and carbon dioxide blowing out of the uh, can, uh, bottle of soda pop. The same thing happens to the gases dissolved inside rock in the earth. They're tamped down, held in place by the tremendous pressures inside the earth. But as soon as they crack free to the surface and there's nothing above them, blam! Volcanoes are basically gigantic 
belchings of gas coming from the inside. Yeah, there's lava and other stuff flowing, but they produce a tremendous volume of gas as literally the shaken up soda pop is cracked open. The comet, even today, we can see those gases coming out of volcanoes. For example, this is a picture of the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. A tremendous amount of water vapor and carbon dioxide are the dominant materials that come out of volcanoes. A little bit of hydrogen sulfide and small amounts of nitrogen, carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, and methane. No oxygen. Now, as the water vapor begins to build up in the Earth's atmosphere, as the Earth cooled off, the temperature drops to the point, remember the equilibrium temperature of the Earth was pretty low from sunlight, you actually get the water vapor condensing into liquid and raining out. The carbon dioxide, for the most part, stays behind. So the paleoatmosphere, the earliest atmosphere of the Earth, was mostly carbon dioxide with an amazing rainstorm going on, slowly but surely building the oceans. Now, it turns out that modern studies have shown that while that was a pretty good picture for how the oceans might be born, it's not the whole story. Volcanic outgassing probably did produce most of the oceans, but they couldn't do the whole job by themselves. So volcanoes out here would produce enough water vapor to rain out to form most of the oceans. But there needs to be some extra material brought in. And the idea is that there is plenty of water ice and other volatile materials, things like carbon dioxide ice and others, stored way out in the outer solar system where it's very, very cold and ices can form naturally. These turn out to be in the form of comets and asteroids in the outer asteroid belt. So as the Jupiter's gravity is tossing stuff left and right through the early solar system, the Earth is just getting pummeled through the Hadean period with asteroids, comets, all kinds of junk raining down on the Earth here. And so as a consequence, whenever a comet hits the Earth carrying a load of ice, it dumps all that ice now into the gaseous, heavier atmosphere of the early Earth and adds extra water. So you start out by building the oceans with volcanic outgassing as the primary component, and then you supplement it with continual incoming comets and asteroids. Now, which one is it? Well, how can we tell? This is billions of years ago. Well, remember that water is pretty much as it has been chemically for most of history. And we can find that there are going to be ratios of different isotopes that are not made by processes in the Earth that are left over from that initial formation. In particular, there's a ratio of something called deuterium to hydrogen, heavy hydrogen to light hydrogen. The ratio of deuterium to hydrogen that we find in the Earth's oceans is more like chondrite meteorites, which come from the asteroid belt, than it is from, com from most comets we've been able to study at some distance. So that sort of suggests that, in fact, the oceans were built primarily by these carbon-rich chondrites, which carried water ice with them, with only a small contributor from the comets. So by using the isotope ratios and looking for where else in the solar system from the leftover construction debris of the solar system that we find these element and isotope mixers, we can piece together, well, okay, that was the, if you will, the brickyard we got our ices from in the solar system. Now, the other piece of evidence that we have for the formation of the ocean very, very early in the history of the Earth are all those zircons we've been using to do radiometric dating. The oldest zircons are the 4.4 billion-year-old zircons that come from the Jack Hills of Australia. Zircons have lock inside them. They're zirconium oxide. Zirconium, silicon, and oxygen form the zircon crystal. You lock into that zirconium oxide the oxygen isotope ratios when those things were formed. And it turns out that the oxygen isotope ratios are what you would expect for the formation of zircons in the presence of abundant liquid water 
not gaseous water. Because the isotope ratio is different for whether you're in the liquid or gas phase for light versus heavy oxygen. We've been able to test this in the laboratory. So it's very clear that if we're finding 4.4 billion year old zircons formed in the presence of water, everywhere we look, there must have been oceans formed, the oceans must have formed very, very quickly. So this ocean building event occurred during the first 200 million years of the Earth's history. That means that the water rained out of the atmosphere and left behind a carbon dioxide rich, heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere. What's interesting is that rich, heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere would have kept the, the Earth warm and moist with the greenhouse effect. And there was abundant liquid water. So conditions may in fact have become favorable for life as early as 100 million years after the Earth initially cooled. That's a billions of years earlier than people had initially suspected. And it's a very important insight into what's going on here. Now, why don't we see fossils going back to 4.4, 4.3 billion years? And the answer is because the Earth really was a Hadean place during this period. Its formation may have been over in bulk, but the solar system wasn't done beating it up. If we look at the moon, where the moon has no plate tectonics, it has no weathering, so it records a history of the earliest rocks on the surface. Those rocks have not been melted and remelted continuously through the history of the solar system. In fact, the moon's evolution as a geological body stopped dead cold three and a half billion years ago. What we see written in the cratering surface of the moon is the history of the first billion years or so of the history of the solar system because the moon is geologically dead. It's like a blank canvas. It records that history. So I can count the various craters in the ages of the terrains. We brought rocks back from the moon from the Apollo and one of the Soviet missions and been able to radioactively age date them. And what we find is the oldest moon rocks correspond to the places of the highest cratering density where the moon is just getting pummeled after and after with craters. Well, if the moon's getting pummeled, we're a lot bigger target, so we were getting pummeled too. Occasionally, you got an impact so big, you were hit by something 100, 500 kilometers across. That just punches right through the crust, straight into the mantle, and moltenizes whole huge chunks of the planet. So, you might get life sort of getting a little claw hold there, and all of a sudden, someone smacks it with a big old space rock. So the problem of this period of heavy bombardment fell off almost exponentially between four and three and a half billion years ago. Four and a half and three and a half billion years. So the first billion years of the solar system's history is no place you'd want to be. You know, the forecast was not for rain. The forecast was for massive space rocks hitting you on the head. Now, if one of those space rocks had a size between 300 and 500 kilometers in diameter, the impact energy alone would have been sufficient to completely vaporize a worldwide ocean and probably turn vast tracts of land into a massive sea of molten magma. We call these sterilizing events, sterilizing impacts, because they literally would have turned the oceans into steam, which as you know, steam is a very good sterilizer of any microbial life, and basically made steam atmospheres and magma seas, to use the memorable words of a geologist who studied this. So any early life that got a toehold, one asteroid impact in the three to 500 kilometer class, bye-bye. It's all over with. It basically sterilizes the Earth, reset, start all over again. The last such sterilizing impact occurred sometime between 4.3 and 3.8 billion years ago. It's very, very hard to pin that down. 
We try to guess from the moon cratering history, but also because most of that terrain has been destroyed by constant geologic and tectonic activity over the last three, four billion years. So the best estimate is that somewhere in there was the last major impact. And the reason we know that is roughly after 3.8 billion years, not too long after that, life got a toehold again, and nothing came by to wipe it out. So this is how we set the end of the Hadean period. If you want to make a marker in geologic history of where the Hadean ends, it's when the last, last period of the epoch of heavy bombardment, this period when the Earth is just getting pummeled left and right, when the last impact comes along that no longer has enough energy to wipe out all life on the planet. You might wipe out 90% of the marine species, 99.9% of the marine species, but... If 0.1% remains, that's the seeds for life to continue on its way. So we mark the end of the Hadean and the beginning of the Archaean when the Earth finally settles down to conditions that are conducive to life. Now, at this point, the Earth has no oxygen in its atmosphere at all. It's still a heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere. It's warm and moist. There's a gigantic, almost planet-circling ocean. But at least it's not getting sterilized. At this point, within a few hundred million years of the end of the Hadean and the beginning of the Archaean is when in fossil strata, rock strata coming up out of the early Archaean, we begin to find the first microscopic fossils. They're bacteria, they're stromatolites, big beds of, of cyanobacteria that can eat methane and don't need oxygen to live. We can find the first microbacteria locked away and fossilized in the rocks. But the interesting conclusion that also comes out of this area is that there have been oceans on the Earth at least continuously from 3.8 billion years ago that have been intact. Before 3.8 billion years, we're pretty sure there were oceans, but we don't know how many times those oceans got vaporized and had to go back and recondense again. We don't know how many times those oceans got their composition reset by incoming comets or chondritic asteroids. So at least the beginnings of history, the dawn of life, is going to be marked sometime on the Earth between the end of the Hadean and within the first hundred million years ago of the Archean. This gives us an interesting lesson when we want to turn around now and ask the question of what life would be like on other worlds. We've learned a very surprising lesson from our own Earth. Life gets going real fast, geologically speaking, when it has a chance. So this is one piece of evidence that maybe life is not so rare through the universe, because if the conditions are right, and it gets a toehold, it takes off. It's an interesting insight. We don't know if it really applies everywhere, but it makes an interesting question we can begin to ask as we start searching for life on other worlds. Any questions? Good. In that case, I will see you all tomorrow.